Good morning. So I don't know if uh, in reading that book, if you, like me, had to do a double take. Is this Fifty Shades of Grey or uh, what are we looking at here? Um, Rather interesting book to find in the Bible, isn't it? One of the things I think is important to remember as we interact with the scriptures is that the scriptures interact with real life. The scriptures are that which was written in a real time, in a real place, with real people, in real situations, in real circumstances of human history. And, and that was what we see in the book of Esther. And, and I think if you're like me and you're reading this and you're asking God to work in it, you're, you might find some real freedom I remember it was not too long ago, it was about a year ago, we studied the book of Daniel together. And and as I'm reading the book of Daniel, I'm like, this guy is perfect. I mean, he refused to eat from the king's table. You know, he wanted to to submit to God's law and the dietary restrictions of God's law would prevent him from eating the food from the king's table. And so he told the guard at the risk of his own life he wouldn't do it. And, And then you have... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Rakshak, and Benny. And they're out in this worship gathering that's taken place, except the worship gathering isn't for God. The worship gathering is for their God, whose name is Nebuchadnezzar. And everybody there is bowed down to him. And whoever doesn't bow down to Nebuchadnezzar is to be thrown in the fiery furnace. And Rakshak and Benny, at the risk of their lives, say, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. We're going to worship Yahweh, even if it costs us our lives. And we see God's faithfulness as they are thrown into the fiery furnace. But God saves them. And then later on, Daniel, as an old man, a decree is passed that there's no prayers to be offered except to the emperor, who is God. And Daniel does as he's always done. He goes into the upper chamber and he gets down on his knees and he prays. And people see him praying and they turn him in and Daniel's thrown into the lion's den. And, and through Daniel's faithfulness to God, God proves faithful to Daniel. And I remember reading the story of that and, and really realizing, like, does this guy have any kind of imperfection at all? I mean, a guy who's not afraid of compromise. And then you have the story of Esther. And have you ever heard the hymn called Dare to be an Esther? There's not one. There's a hymn called Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. And dare to make it known. But Esther is different. Esther was a woman that was a Jew living in Persia who we see here did look more like a Persian than an Israelite. But yet God used her. And you know, I find a great comfort in that. Because oftentimes I could be more like Esther than Daniel. Oftentimes I could feel like I'm I'm disqualified. Somehow God doesn't love me as much. Because I haven't been perfect. Because I have been compromising in my faith. Because I haven't walked perfectly in God's law. But yet, the words of Romans ring true for me and you today as we come under the grace of God. Therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can I, can I just speak that over us today? When, when we come in and we're imperfect and we've messed up this week and maybe we come in feeling more like Esther than Daniel, 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's one kingdom requirement in Christ Jesus. And you know, when I read the book of Daniel, I was reminded of this wonderful truth is that Daniel needed Jesus just as much much as Esther did. And that's why Jesus came for Daniel, for Esther, for you and for me. Let's pray. God, you came to set the captives free. God, you came to break the shackles that have our hearts in bondage. God, there has been a satanic work that is always going on that tells us that we're not good enough, that we can't receive grace, that, we, that we've blown it, God. Causing us to run from you, causing us to turn and go the other way, God. But, but God, your word, your word sets the captives free. God, it frees the human heart to be a, a people of dignity and worth and value. You created us for that, God. God, we've all run in a different direction than that, in rebellion against you, God. I, I pray that today you would chase us down. You would find us where we're at. And God, our hearts wouldn't believe the lies of Satan anymore, but would believe your truth that is free in Jesus Christ. There is therefore no condemnation in Christ Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So, Karen Jobes is a commentator. Uh, she is a scholar. Uh, she's a New Testament professor. And she's fabulous. She, she writes about some of the tensions that we feel. And she brings it into our, our own lives when, when she says this, speaking of Mordecai and Esther. Even when we know the right decision, we're not always committed to it. Anybody ever been there? You knew the right decision in life and you chose to go against the right decision because you weren't committed to it. She says, regardless, speaking of Esther and Mordecai, regardless of whether they had the best motives, God was working even through their imperfect decisions and actions to fulfill his perfect purposes. Other than Jesus, even the godliest people of the Bible were flawed, often confused, and outright disobedient. We're no different from them. Yet our gracious God omnipotently works His perfect plan through them, through us, and most surprisingly, even through powerful political structures that sometimes operate in evil ways. I've often lived in this world and I've wondered how is it possible to even be a Christian in our culture today? I've lived in this world and I've, I've wondered how is it possible to be able to do the, the right thing when, when, when this world just blatantly rejects God? Or maybe not blatantly, but pretends like they accept God, but inside there's a deep darkness that everybody hides. We can't talk about it. 
Because we have to pretend and perform so that we can make ourselves acceptable to the culture around us. And if we can't do that, then let's go over to the other side and say, who cares about what God says? I don't need God in my life. I don't need the people of God in my life because they're just going to beat me down. They're just going to tear me apart. And so I'm going to run away from them. And so what we do is we equate God with the people in the world around us when God is really very much above it. He's transcendent. And, and one of the things that's so powerful about the, the book of Esther is that the name of God is not mentioned, at not even one time. Spirituality is, is, is scarcely alluded to, but yet it's a rather ordinary book of the day and time of the culture, and it had God at work in the shadows, seeing that God's movement is actually in the ordinary. That when you can't see God, He's there and He's doing stuff. And even in our own lives, when we're filled with, with regret and we're filled with, we're filled with wonder about, is God really here? Is God really paying attention? Does God really care about me? Or does God really know what I'm going through? That God is actually working in the shadows to draw you to Himself and to fulfill His perfect will through you. Even on those dark days, even in that brokenness, even in that chaos, even in that darkness, God is at work. And and that's what we see here. If you remember chapter one, the king issued a decree. And the decree that he issued was one that allowed him to divorce his wife. No fault divorce. Like, I didn't do anything. She did something wrong. She didn't want to obey my command. And so this king is having a bad day. I mean, he had a 180-day party. It was a feast like, like it, let's just call it Club Xerxes for 180 days. And, and it had the best food, the best drink, and the most beautiful women in the harem. And everything was available to the men that were there in order to see the king's glory, to see the king's power, to see the king's might. Many believe that this was the party that the king threw in order to garner, in order to garner people's support for the battle for Thermopolis. If you remember, it's a famous battle where the Persians lost very handedly to the Greeks. And this battle was one in which he, 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 he opened up his royal treasury and he said, if you'll be on my side, you'll be rewarded. So give your life to me. And what better way for a king to win over the hearts and minds of the people by throwing, than by throwing the best party and lavishing all their desires to the fulfillment of their wills. And the king says, it's okay because I'm your God. That was Xerxes there. But then he thinks after drinking, you know, probably number 28 or 29, he's had so much to drink, and he thinks, you know what would make this party better if Vashti came? She's so beautiful. She would be the envy of the kingdom. And so he sends his thugs, the eunuchs, to go get his wife, and his wife is having a party with the women in the kingdom, in the king's castle. And then Vashti refuses the king. She says, I'm not doing that. I'm not. You know, the king didn't want to honor her. He wanted to shame her. He wanted the men to Google at her, and he wanted to be envied among all of the kingdom because of his wife's beauty. 
And so the king was frustrated and angry. His fury burned. And here's a king who's, who's controlling 127 provinces, but he can't control his wife. And so the king is left to be like the emperor without clothes. He's a king without power, so he's got to do something. And so he makes a decree. In fact, one of his advisors next to him says, here's what you need to do, king, because right now you've been insulted. It's not just you that's been insulted. All the men of the kingdom have been insulted. God forbid all the women in the kingdom decide that they don't have to listen to their husbands anymore and they do what you did. Here's the deal, king. We need to make a decree so that you could save face. Because if one of these women do that in, 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 in the kingdom, then they're going to blame you for it. And so the king issues a decree that Vashti is to be removed that he is to be divorced, and that he is to find a new wife who would bring him more pleasure. And at the same time, all of the kingdom is now under this law that says, if a woman is to disobey her husband, then the husband can simply dispose of her. Now, this would have struck fear in the women around the kingdom because a woman's livelihood was in her husband. They didn't have the rights and dignity that many of us share today. Although I know that there's many tie-ins that we could learn from in this culture and how we need God to bring renewal and redemption here. It was Me Too on steroids, by the way. That was taking place there. And so the king issues the decree. Verse 1 of chapter 2 The king's a little melancholy. The anger has subsided. The alcohol has kind of, the effects of the alcohol has faded away. And he's a little sad. He's feeling a little little weak at heart. He's thinking about Vashti. Oh, Vashti. And he realizes what he did. He realized that there's no more Vashti for him. Because he's made a law. And when the king passes a law, it's as good as God's. So you can't redo the law. If God is perfect, then there's no changing what God does. And so the king's decree cannot be changed. And so the advisors who are next to him give advice for a new decree. And this decree is one that would find him that perfect wife. So there's a bachelor-style reality show that's created for the new wife of the king of Persia. Actually, it wasn't really like that. It was, in all likelihood, a cabinet was created, and you had Haggai, who was promoted to the, to the chief of the queen-finding cabinet. Across all 127 provinces, they opened up offices, and they demanded registry of all the young, beautiful virgins. And the king really only had three requirements for his future bride. There were three qualifications that she was to fulfill. Number one, she would be young and beautiful. Number two, she'd be an unmarried virgin. And number three, she'd be compliant. Because Vashti was not compliant. And if she were to be better than Vashti, then she must be compliant. And so the search commenced. And all the women of the kingdom, they weren't voluntarily being a part of this, but it says that they were taken. They were gathered. 
They were brought into harems in order for the king to find his most precious and beautiful wife, his most precious piece of property. That was what we were looking at then. Do you see that marriage didn't represent this love and flourishing of relationship? Marriage actually represented property. A wife was not her husband's soulmate. The wife was her husband's property. His worth and value was, she was an asset to him so that he could gain favor. And so the king needed the best wife of the land. And surely you can find out of 127 provinces the best woman. And so the king made this decree and everybody moved. Now, I want to also share with you something different. It, it wasn't such a sexist kingdom as it was a kingdom that was literally at the disposal of the king. The people, the subjects of the kingdom were all considered property of the king. And I'll say this to give you one example. There is a, a, a historian, his name was Herodotus in that time period. Herodotus was writing about some of the things that took place in the kingdom. And every year what they would do, not only for women in the concubine, they would do this for the young boys, is they would find 500 boys every year and they would bring them into the king's palace and make them eunuchs of the king, which means that these boys were taken and they were castrated. And they were put into the service of the king because what other way would these eunuchs be devoted to the king than to be stripped of their dignity to have a wife and a family? That way they could be completely devoted to King Xerxes. That was another thing that happened. So some would say that the women had it hard. Well, the boys did too. It wasn't such an easy time period to live in because everything was at the disposal of King Xerxes. And he was an unfulfilled man, even though he had everything. And the thought was, is if I have the wife that is the most beautiful and the most compliant, then I will be fulfilled. Even the king was empty. We read next about the beauty that is sought after in the kingdom. Verses 5 through 18 share about the, the beauty in the kingdom and the king's search for it. And we're introduced to this young girl named Hadassah. That was Esther's name. Her Jewish name was Hadassah. Her identity was as a child of God. Her cousin, Mordecai, was her adopted father. She was an orphan. A young orphan girl living in Persia. This is in all likelihood two generations removed from the original captivity that took place with Daniel. You might remember Daniel was brought from Israel into Babylon. Babylon was conquered by Persia. Now Persia is running the show. And about two generations removed here, we find this young teenage girl, Esther, trying to live as a Jewish orphan with an adopted dad in a Persian empire. It was an unfamiliar world, and you had to learn how to play by the rules if you were going to survive. It was not anything less than survival that many of these people were dealing with. 
The Jews were taken from their homeland. They were, they were taken from the temple, from the, the, the community of fellowship and worship of Yahweh, and they were brought into pagan cultures that hated them, that despised them. And that's part of the reason why the author mentions their identity is because he wants us to know, number one, that they are part of the chosen people of God, and number two, that there are people that because of their identity will hate them and will seek their destruction. And it's that destruction, it's their survival that causes Mordecai to say to Esther when she's before she's brought into the king's harem, hide your Jewish identity. Don't tell people that you're a Jew. Don't tell people that you are from Israel. Don't tell people of your love for Yahweh. Hide it so that no one can see it. Because your faith in that period wasn't wasn't something that bought you anything significant. It is actually more of a liability than an asset. And it oftentimes can be like that today, can it? Our faith in Christ can be what people try to squeeze out of us, to choke out of us. That was what Persia did to anybody. Any form of individuality Persia sought to destroy. Any form of personal relationship with God was, was looked down upon. And, and oftentimes that, that's the way it is in our world today is, is we're forced to live in the shadows within our faith. And Esther, certainly, within the king's court, had to be very, very discerning on how she lived as a Jew in the king's harem. It's quite an interesting story. How how do you have a, a, a woman or a child of God in the harem that is to be the contest for the king's wife? There's so much that is wrong with this because the king actually had a standard for this. The king's standard was that she would be a virgin, that she would be beautiful and unmarried, and that she would be compliant. But the way the king found his, his wife was that, well, he, he, would, he would actually take it for a test drive. That was m- much of the way that it worked back then, and, and, and the, these, these girls really had two options from there when they were brought into the king's harem. It wasn't like the contest would just take place for a year and then they would go home. No, it was actually the women would have two options. They would either, one, which only one of them would become queen, or two, they would be put in the harem of the king's concubines. Karen Jobes, again, the commentator I spoke of, mentions what this looks like. She, she says, After spending one night in the king's bed, the woman was returned to the harem of concubines, where she would spend the rest of her life in luxurious, luxurious but desolate seclusion. Her life had been preempted by the king's pleasure. She could not leave the harem to return to her family. The woman would not even see the king again unless He asked for her by name. Children conceived by the king in these unions were raised to serve their father in high-ranking positions, but they were not legitimate heirs to the throne. I want you to think about the aspirations that you had as a child for your life. 
and how those aspirations when you were called by the king would have been crushed and that you, your life would have been preempted by him to serve in his court at his pleasure. This is for boys and for girls. I want you to think about if you're a parent, that your children did not belong to you, that you weren't in control of the way you raised them, but you were to raise them to be compliant to the king, and that the king's will went further than yours, and so you would have raised your children to obey the king if they were to survive. This was the way it was in Persia. And the other thing about Persian culture in that time period, as you can see, is that there was a very high value placed upon beauty. You read this, you read it with Vashti, that she was a beautiful woman that was lovely to look at. You see in Esther that she was a beautiful woman in frames and features. And so you have a kingdom that's built upon the externals, the externals, the externals. Your value in the kingdom wasn't who you are, but what you did. Your value in the kingdom wasn't the beauty in the inside. It was the beauty on the outside. That was the way of the Persian culture. That's not like our culture today, is it? We're, we're so far different from Persia. I mean, we've advanced so much from the Persian Empire. Like, we, we are not like that as Americans, are we? I, I think we probably are. Thanks for the... <clears throat> yes, we are. We find ourselves in our culture today playing by the same rules in a very different way. We say, my body, my life. And we think that we have this individuality. But all the while, when we do that, we're just playing by the game and we're becoming like everyone else. And on the TV screens, each and every day, you see that what it's selling to you is the externals, the externals, the externals. Make yourself more valuable to the kingdom. Make yourself more valuable to the world around you. Make yourself more beautiful. And you see that the king's requirements wasn't simply the beauty that Esther had naturally. There was, a, there was a one year process of beautification where she was given cosmetics, essential oils. There was an Ulta store right around the corner that she had to go to to find her, her, her makeup. She had all the exfoliation and all that kind of stuff and she had to beautify herself in order to make herself more acceptable for the king. And you're talking about a, an already very beautiful woman. And, and I want you to see that the pressure then is some of the pressure that we feel today. Especially you could relate if you're a woman to the issue of beauty. You're constantly thinking, am I good enough? Am I pretty enough? And if I take a picture, I gotta always ask somebody, can I put your picture on Facebook or Instagram? Like, you gotta check it, make sure, okay, that looks good. Never mind, sorry. Um, does anybody else relate to that? I mean, you gotta, thank you, thank you. If you, if you relate, you, you, gotta, you gotta make sure you ask before you post the picture. Uh, th- this is a little side, little freebie. Was watching Jumanji. Anybody seen the m- movie Jumanji? Uh, anybody saw saw the new one that came out? And so there's the girl that was one of the uh, that was one of the the people that are thrust into the video game, and she's doing a selfie. And this selfie she's worked at for about an hour by trying to make it look as natural as she can. Just woke out of bed, woke up out of bed. And uh, her whole point is to, to show that she's just naturally beauty, but she has to work very artificially hard to make that happen. And oftentimes, what we have to do to make ourselves acceptable to the world around us, not just in our beauty, but in our livelihood, in our life, is to work very artificially hard at what doesn't really matter. 
That's what we do because that's what matters to the kingdom. That's what matters to American society. It's not who you are. It's what you do. So men were valued by their wealth, by their wallets, and women were valued by their waist size. And it was a wrong standard of beauty, and it's a wrong standard of beauty for American society. And we use the the words like good health, that taking care of our bodies to say that this is why this matters. And, And hear me say, that is a very important thing. Sometimes we use good things in order to accomplish the the wrong things. But what happens if we take that further into our hearts is we actually think that if I don't do this, I'm less significant. If I don't look like this, I don't have value. And so our self-worth begins to collapse. And we begin to wonder, am I loved Am I cared for? We push ourselves further into isolation and loneliness. And like the women who are in desolate seclusion in the king's harem, we find ourselves in desolate seclusion all alone. And then when we get out of that, we just play by the king's rules instead of really finding our identity in Jesus Christ. Here's the thing you have to know about Esther is Esther's beauty was not marked by an internal beauty. Esther's beauty was marked by her identity as a daughter of God. The author goes to great lengths to tell us that this woman wasn't just any woman. She was, she was part of God's covenant people. She was part of God's covenant family. She was an orphan, but she had a father, and her father wasn't Mordecai. Her father is Jehovah. And so you see that this woman who is in this pagan land is a woman who actually belongs to God. And so one of the things that you're going to see is that God actually cares for her as his daughter. God cares for her as he cares for his children. The, the, the beauty of our identity as children of God comes from one place. The beauty of our identity as children of God comes from one place. The beauty of the kingdom, the kingdom standards is so different, comes from one place, and that's Christ. The beauty standards of God's kingdom says beauty is found only in one, and that is Jesus Christ. God's standard of beauty is different from the world around us. God's standard of beauty was different from that of Persia. God's standard of beauty is in the beauty and perfection of God's Son. And Hadassah, Esther, her identity as a Jew would have put her hope in the Messiah for her beauty. Now, listen to me. You and I as Christians should do that as well, but we don't, do we? Because oftentimes we find the beauty of this world so captivating, so alluring, that we dive headlong into it and we give ourselves to a beauty that's lesser than the beauty of Christ. And do you want to know the beauty of Christ and why he's beautiful for me and you here today? The beauty of Christ is that Christ gives us his beauty where we don't have it. 
Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3 says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You know, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and to bring redemption to his people. And you know what made him ugly to the world around him? Is he didn't play by the same rules. He didn't try to live by the external rules of the world's kingdom. In fact, when the Pharisees wanted him to play by their rules and to be among them for a meal and not among the sinners, Jesus tells these self-righteous Pharisees, it's not the sick or it's not the healthy who need a a doctor, but the sick. I came not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. He was playing by a different set of rules because in Jesus' mind, it was that he was going to bring a beautification to those who were rejected. Last night, we watched a show, a movie called uh, The Greatest Showman. Anybody seen it? Marvelous movie. I highly recommend it. And P.T. Barnum gets his start of his career by going out and finding the rejects, finding the despised, finding those who had these uh, deformities, the people who were locked up in their rooms, the bearded lady, and then the, 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 the orphan, or the, it was the, the young boy, the little, well, he wasn't a young boy, 22-year-old man that was about four feet, three feet tall. And he brought these people hope and purpose and passion where they formerly didn't have it. And it was a marvelous movie of redemption that we see. What Jesus did is he he came into the world and he found those who were rejected by the culture. He found those who who were neglected by the culture. He found those who were in isolation and stuck in shame. And he gave them purpose. He gave them hope. He gave them a future. And how did he do that? Because he was despised and he was stricken by men. He became for them the shame that they had bore. He became for them the curse that they even bore from God. Do you see that even the ugly... Even those who are rejected need redemption and grace. Christianity is not just a few people collected together and having a pity party. Christianity is people who have been gathered together by the beauty of Jesus. And we have submitted ourselves to him. And he is the one that is making us beautiful. He is the one that is changing us into his image and perfecting us into the likeness of Christ. God made you individually with dignity and value just like he did Esther. And oftentimes, we don't believe in that dignity and value. And many times, like Esther, I I don't know if she had a better solution than to sleep with the king. What else am I going to do? How else am I going to survive? So rather than bucking against the culture, she went along with it. And the powerful thing here is, is that even though Esther sinned, 
Even though Esther sinned against the holiness and righteousness of God, God was the one who was carrying her through the process to both protect her and bring about redemption to his people. God was at work in the shadows. Many of you in your life have sin and shame and guilt based upon your sin and the things you've done, and you think, how can God get glory in my life today? And because we can't answer that with our lives, what we do is we run from God, and we think that somehow God doesn't care about us. And so we run further from God, and we believe in the lives of the world that say you're not good enough for God to use. You're not good enough for God to love. And so we run further and further and further away. But yet God uses even our running from him to find us in that pigsty like the, like the younger brother in the story of the prodigal son to find us in the pigsty in order to bring us home to him. Maybe you're there today. Maybe you find yourself in the midst of the spattered on ugliness needing God's cleansing and his redemption. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we cleaned ourselves up and made ourselves better, but when Jesus came down and showed his love for us where you're at right now, where you were at 10 years ago, where you're at 20 years ago, and he showed his love for us that while you were still sinners, Christ died. There's no beautification treatments necessary for God He accepts you unconditionally in his son, Jesus Christ. You know how Jesus loves us? Paul says in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, Jesus doesn't come and say, demand that we make ourselves perfect for him. No, Jesus' perfecting power is at work day by day in our life as God cleanses us with the beauty of Christ through the word of God. He washes us and he makes us pure. He makes us whole. He brings about his beauty in us. This is what Jesus Christ has done, and that's what he continues to do. God was not done with Esther. God's not done with you. And that's where we see that God works in mysterious ways. Because if it wasn't for Esther being in the, queen, in the king's palace and becoming queen, then Mordecai would not be at the king's gates. And while Mordecai was at the king's gates, he overheard two of the eunuchs frustrated at the king and wanting to kill the king and assassinate him. Well, Esther had a voice right to the king. And so Esther, or, or Mordecai had a voice right to the king. And so Mordecai told Esther what had taken place. Esther then told the king. They did an investigation. They found that the eunuchs were guilty and they killed them. And here it says that This was recorded in the king's chronicles. 
In that time period in Persian culture, if someone would do something that for the king, they would be celebrated with dignity and worth and value. But here it's just kind of an afterthought. Here we don't see anything happen, and and it's a foreshadowing of God's work in a mysterious way. Because why does that happen? And what we're going to find out next week is that God chose to conceal Mordecai in order to reveal him at a later time to bring salvation for the Jews who are about to be annihilated. That God used Esther in the king's court to be able to plead on behalf for the Jewish people to be saved. That through Esther's faithfulness, even in the midst of her sin, but through Esther's courage, that God would bring about redemption that would lead to salvation for the people of God through Jesus Christ. Because that promise from Genesis chapter 315, where the seed of the woman would come the Messiah who would crush the head of the snake, would be found to fulfillment as Christ himself Jesus Christ himself would come through the redemption of this story. God works in mysterious ways. So where is that for your life today? Where do you find the hidden hand of God at work? Can you see it? If you can't see it, run to God. Ask him to show himself to you. Where do you... Find that you're filled with guilt and sorrow and regret. Ask God to show himself and his faithfulness to you and look for him in those unseen places. John Piper says God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. God is at work and there are thousands of things that God is doing in your life in this moment and you may only be aware of three of them. And what it requires for us today is surrender. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my way higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than yours. That God knows better, because God has a better vantage point, and he is working all things according to his plan and purposes that say to you today, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that we come under your grace, that we come under the forgiveness that says, for while we were yet sinners, Christ died. So we come to the table today to take communion. And we come and we acknowledge, Lord, that it's not about making ourselves better for you, but it's about, God, the food that you offer through the preciousness of your blood. Your broken body and shed blood, Lord, is all we need. And we receive it with glad and generous hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us? For those of you who trust in Jesus as your forgiver, leader, and Lord, I encourage you to come and partake in communion. We'll follow down the aisle, take the bread, dip it in the cup, and receive the Lord's Supper in that way. For those of you who today would 
say, I don't know who this person Jesus is. I encourage you to reflect in your chair what God may be stirring in your heart and ask God to meet you right where you're at because he will. We believe it. Let's worship God through communion and song.